When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast that reboots your thinking about farming, ranching, food systems, and the people that operate them. I'm your host, Brian Alexander, and this is Ranching Reboot, episode 150. Today, we're going to visit a diverse 11,000-acre regenerative grazing operation in southeast Montana. But first, the business. Ranching Reboot is sponsored by Land Trust. Land Trust is your first stop as a sportsman looking for a new place to play or hunt. And for all of us landowners, Land Trust is a great way to find those sportsmen and have some peace of mind while they're out hunting or playing. You know, when somebody knocks on my door, cold calls, and wants to talk about hunting, that's really hard for me because I don't know the person on the other end of the phone, and I don't know anything other than what's standing in front of me on the porch. Land Trust takes all that anxiety away by conducting background checks and verifying everyone's identity. When you partner with Land Trust, you don't give up anything. You don't give up any control. You have full control over all the bookings. And if you get a bad feeling about somebody, you don't have to send them an offer. Listing your property on Land Trust costs you nothing. In fact, Land Trust will do most of the hard work for you. They'll even send a rep out to scout your place and work with you to tailor your, tailor your offerings. Heck, they'll even write most of your listing and upload all the pictures. Land Trust is a great platform for both landowners and sportsmen to connect. Check it out today by going to the link in the show notes or by simply going to www.landtrust.com. Support for this episode is also provided by my amazing patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher. Patrons on Patreon and subscribers on Spotify get access to a podcast feed without all those annoying ads that everybody skips anyway. Tell you what, while I'm thinking about it, I'm going to issue a challenge. It's a lot of work making two versions of the podcast and getting them all uploaded. So I want to make a deal. If just 20 of you sign up for a subscription or support the podcast on Patreon, I will turn off all of the embedded ads for everyone for the whole rest of the year. You heard that right. Just 20 of you sign up for the subscription on Spotify or support me on Patreon. I'll turn off the ads for everybody for the rest of the year. That's it. All right. My guest today is Chess Meyer, a second generation holistic manager. And we're going to talk about grazing, water infrastructure, cover cropping, and how they have recently pivoted their business to better serve their customers. Here we go. Chess Meyer, good morning, sir. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm, me on. Hey, good to have you here. Um, I'm cold. It's uh, it's cold, but that's also January. You know, I probably shouldn't complain about how cold it is because you're in Montana and I'm in Kansas. Yeah, wasn't uh, last week we had negative sixty four degree wind chill. Um, we didn't quite get there. I think we we're somewhere in the negative twenties, which is, is plenty it's bad. Still it's probably almost colder that you guys probably have more humidity down there than we got. Winters here are usually really, really dry. Um, oh, okay. It's, we've had some humidity this year. We've had, we've had more precipitation this winter than we've had like the last two. So it's hard to complain about the precipitation, but when it's, um, We've only had just a couple hours of thaw in like the last week. So there's ice still sticking around from 10 days ago, which is 
that's not a normal thing here. Like if we have ice snow that sticks around for more than a week, that's kind of a noteworthy event. Really? Yeah. yeah. Well, usually when we get snow, we get, we keep it. We got snow in October, a foot of it. That actually saved our bacon as far as the moisture went. And then we had a beautiful, beautiful November and December. It was a, it was the about the warmest on record that I can remember. We had a lot of uh, fall projects done that we didn't get done in the fall. So. Were you guys dry up there the growing for the growing season? And, you know, we did pretty good. No, it was a money I would consider it. A, what I would like to think is an average year, if we could have stayed away from the grasshoppers and the flies, then we would have had a, a about your perfect average year, I guess. If you, if you take that as you as you will. Okay. So uh, tell me a little bit about where you're, where, where are you guys at in Montana? We're in the southeastern corner. We're 10 miles west of a little town called Ekalaka, Montana. Okay. Um, my family has been ranching here since then. Early 19, 1908 is when my, my grandma's family settled, started ranching in this country, homesteaded. Um, and my, my grandma married my grandpa and they got a portion of the ranch in 1931, I believe. And my dad inherited, inherited it when my grandpa died in 81, I believe. I might be wrong on that date because the date really isn't as important, but, uh, he took over and, and had to go through the whole interest rate days of the eighties and try and keep it because we were in debt when he took it over. And then he, he's done very well for himself and actually doubled the size of it since then. So we've got about 11,000 acres out here. Doubled the size of the ranch since the eighties. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I'm, I've talked to a few folks from Montana. Let's see, um, of course, our friends, Nick and Coulter over there in Bozeman. Um, yep. I think the last guest I interviewed was also right there around Bozeman. So that's Western Montana's mountains and, and, and cool stuff. What yeah. Eastern, what's Southeast Montana like? Uh, you know, we get, I guess if you can, you, you could say we're close enough to North Dakota and, and that, you know, the wind and weather you know, patterns that they get, uh, it's, it's gets cold here and stays cold. I, I went to college in Billings and, and my brother and sisters went to college in Bozeman and, you know, I'd say that, you know, Bozeman gets the weather and, and even Billings gets the weather, but they'll get warm snaps to kind of melt stuff off as far as in the Valley and in the town that is, uh, and in Eclaco, we don't really get that. It just, we're always just, once we get it, we keep it kind of usually uh, and we get a lot of wind pretty really windy in our area i think so i'm not going to give you the doom and gloom and say you know we're, we're the coldest worst place to live in america you know if you could survive ranch here you're really doing her but it can be extreme uh wind i mean kansas is named for the kansas tribe people of the wind and yeah i know what wind is like um yeah you know, and I've traveled up through South Dakota, North Dakota a little bit and, you know, kind of skipped through a little bit of Wyoming. I've never actually been to Montana. I'm going to try to cross that off the old bucket list this year. Yeah. I just, I think that people that live on the coasts don't understand what wind is. Like only us no. people that live here in the plains understand wind. I, I think so. I, 
I've got, you know, relatives, you know, even in Montana, they come from Bozeman and, and Western Montana or places and they do, how could you stand to live out? Does it ever stop blowing out here? You know, I guess, I, I guess when you, you just get acclimated, I mean, I still do not like the whip, but I live in the wrong place, not like it. I get used to it more than I think I do. I realize it, it just. A lot of times it, the wind will straight up blow me right back into the house at about 20 to 25 miles an hour. Yeah. Well, why not? When it's hard to stand up outside, you should probably not be there anymore and go in and yeah, cover. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so how long have you been there? How long have you been ranching? Well, I've, uh, been here uh, full-time ranching since I graduated college in 2011 um, and, and been helping dad every, well, I guess I would say I, I really stepped into a role. My brother left and went into the Navy in 2003, four, three, oh, raw. I was Navy. And uh, he was in for eight years, but when he left, I kind of was the next young, oldest boy and I had to step up into that position. So I guess ever since then I've been, you know, for lack of a better term, maybe the right hand man or, or, or you know, pretty involved, very involved, you know, but full time since I got out of college in Seattle. Okay. What'd you go to college for? Construction actually. Okay. I just went to a text. I went to too poor to go to four-year school so i just figured i'd go get a trade okay kind of I'm trying to think about that and if like what did you find there in in carpenter school to apply to ranching oh i don't know i mean i i've always been kind of was you know i always like to build stuff and i so as far as you know just doing some carpentry around the ranch itself there and uh, i took some wiring classes i i I've used that. So maybe in a, not in a business sense, I've used it, but in a, in a, in a working sense of uh, applying the, the trades that I learned there, I've been sure used it. Okay. Okay. Always, always interesting to, to hear what people's education experience is like. And if they've been, if they got kicked off the ranch for a little while and had to go work for somebody else before they were allowed to come back. And that's, I think that's one of the things that helped me is, so like I mentioned, you know, I, I joined the Navy. I was in from 1997 to 2006, so just over eight years. Um, got out, came back to the ranch, which I'm sure is a story that it gets repeated a lot. Um, yeah. But it was... It's good, good. I should have probably went longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm getting at is I think it was a really good experience, you know, even though there was a business that I could come back to, it was a good experience to have to go work for somebody else and have to work for a non-family member in an actual business setting. And okay, not like the Navy is really, you know, big business or anything, but you're working for other people that have other goals and you don't know them like, you know, your parents that you grew up with. So it's just, a, it's a different environment and there's benefits, I suppose. Oh yeah. I think there's huge benefits. It just even on a management aspect of picking up, you know, I did work for some ranches when I was going to college part-time, uh, 
you know, I picked up some philosophies and, and stuff from, uh, one particular ranch that I worked for that a lot of them were, a lot of them were aligned, but they, they were, they lived in Billings and could trade and sell a little more often. So I got to kind of deal with that. They also ran sheep, got to learn a little bit about sheep and I, we never ran sheep. My dad used to, and he was young, but I've never ran sheep in my lifetime on this ranch. So kind of get to pick up a little bit of a variety of something you wouldn't see if you don't leave. So. Yeah. And that's just getting out and exploring some other, you know, other options. And, you know, sounds like you did that and did that while you were in college. And I think that's great. So I'm, I'm interested to learn some more about your history because when we, when we were texting and, and emailing back and forth, you said that, uh, your dad's been doing regenerative stuff for 40 years. Tell me about that. Well, he's been building electric fence since the eighties and he put in, there was a, uh, NRCS guy, um, that was a savory, uh, you know, acolyte disciple done, done this. Yeah. One of his disciples or whatever, and kind of got dad started on building more cross fences and, and on a, on a, large scale or i shouldn't say large scale but a not a very intensified uh pie you know graze around the water tank add some more um medicines and try to improve the pastures that way and stuff so the wagon wheel or the pie around a water yes. trap that was the thing in the 80s like yeah it was it's huge yep yeah which everybody and it's still pretty big now i think people are moving away from it a little more now but I, I think we've just had to do the wagon wheel for enough years to kind of see some of the issues with it. And yeah, I think there's also something to be said about technology needed to catch up a little bit. And so I, I've got a bunch of those legacy wagon wheels and I, I kind of still build them because I can't figure out a better way. Um, and you know, you mentioned like NRCS. So there's a couple of different ways to skin the cat with water these days. If you've got a blank slate and you don't own the land, it doesn't make sense to go in and trench in pipelines and put in permanent tanks, which, you know, not saying anything bad about NRCS or any of those other programs, but if you can't get your landowner on board, you can't get that stuff done through NRCS and you're running lines above yep. ground with, with temporary infrastructure. And I think, you know, we're both owner operators. So, and let's, let's face it, we're kind of a dying breed. There's very few of us left and there's less every day. And we're yes. moving more towards a model where there's, you know, corporate or absentee ownership and the ranchers just leasing the land. So I guess what I'm saying is I think a lot of the ranches that have the ability to already do these developments using NRCS money, I think we've already done it. I think most of us have already done it. And the people that aren't doing it is because they don't qualify. They can't get ownership to agree to put in, to put in the piece. So wagon wheels are great. I think <laughs> and that's just what they make you build. Yeah. Uh, to hit on that, just a touch, you know, we, we have done a lot of it and I'm not going to say there's anything wrong with it. And, and there, there's a lot of good things that come from it. And, I will say though, that especially in the early two thousands, when we were really ramping up and, and designing and building our strip grazing system and adding a lot more tanks, we were putting in a, a tank in every half mile and 
build a lot of two wire cross man. Uh, their, their specs weren't up to par or were over parred. They were trying to make us do some things that I didn't think that we needed to do. And, and it was gonna, you know, we had to come to a decision. Well, are we going to jump through their hoops or are we going to build it the way we know it will work? Cause we, we knew more about electric and probably still do than the government does right now. I'm just going to flat out say it. I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to be that arrogant about it, but they're, they're not that, I mean, there's difference between being in the office, trying to design it or going out there and practicing and knowing what works, you know, and we're very, one thing I will say about electric fence too is, is on, on to kind of side with the government a little bit is, uh, when you go to wire your house, there's codes and everything else to, you've got to stand by and every. Everybody that I run into, because I sell electric fence and says that they hate electric fence, they say why they need it. And you realize that, well, they used a really bad charger or they used really bad posts or bad, it didn't, you know, they just didn't build it. Or they so, tried to ground it to the barbed wire fence. Yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. You hear, you hear all this different stuff. You, well, that's why you didn't, you had a bad experience. And so I understand where the NRCS has their, or, you know, the, the government uh, programs have their stipulations on why they want to do it. But in our case, particular case, we needed to kind of get away from them a little bit. And they've caught up. It, you know, in a lot of ways, they've caught up now. It just took a, this long to get to it. Yeah. But, but in the going to your lease uh, part two, we actually did put in a bunch of pipeline and fence. But we did have a landowner on board, but we actually did it our own dime. And we had a lot of people kind of looking at us with the side eye wondering, you know, how are you going to, how did that work? You know, and dad said, well, and at that time in, in that economy, uh, when we were putting it in, it has been the, the uh, mid two thousands, we were putting it in for 50 bucks an acre fence and pipeline. And dad said, oh, I mean, one of them was a farmer and he said, well, how much do you have into your wheat crop this year? And you know. This is a lifetime investment, if it, especially if it's on my own place. But he said, even if I get you know, 10 years, you know, we had a really good relationship with our, our landlord too. So that's a little bit different story. But. Well, I think a lot of, well, I don't think, I know a lot of the reason why the government NRCS is really hesitant to fund anything that can be seen as temporary, like any kind of temporary electric fence or poly wire, uh, above ground poly lines or portable tanks. Because they don't want you to be able to pick it up and go sell it six yeah. months after they paid for 75% of it and you pocket the money. Okay, I get that. I get that. And that's that kind of behavior wouldn't be right anyway. But I can also definitely see where people would take advantage of it 100%. Oh, yeah. So, it, like everything else, it seems like a pretty simple solution on low level, but when you kind of zoom out to 30,000 foot and look at some of the bigger problems, it's like, oh, well, that's why they don't do this because probably 50% of the people would just take that crap and sell it the next year and pocket the money and laugh at the government and laugh at the government. And I hate paying taxes more than anybody and else. And then cuss them. And then cuss them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate paying taxes and I like to get as much of that back as possible. But you know, th there's also the point that, you know, if it's buried in the ground, I can't just pick it up and sell it, which yeah, I, you know, and you have to respect that point because it's not, it's everybody's money. It's not just a gift. 
Yeah. Yep. They got an investment. But then, then, you know, I think about, you know, this trend that we're on of going to absentee and corporate land ownership for all of our ranches and, you know, big tracts of land in the West. And I wonder like, okay, who's, who's this benefiting? It's where, where's all this, where's it all going? You know, every year they say, well, we've got so many, so much money left in these programs that we didn't fund. Why aren't people coming in? Well, people aren't coming in because there aren't any of us. Don't work anymore. Yeah. We're not there. I mean, there's, there's nobody left anymore that qualifies for all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's see, you mentioned your dad, like got connected with somebody in the eighties. Sounds like that was a, that was an early disciple of savory. And I think there was a lot of those going around or not a lot. There were a few of those going around from what I remember of the story. Um, it was around like 80, 81, 82 when Alan Savory and Stan Parsons had to leave Zimbabwe. And now those guys both come from the same part of the world with a lot of the same ideas. And by all accounts, they're not really, you know, buddies. Yeah. I, I think that they spent a lot of time together in the early 80s talking and co-developing concepts. And my understanding of it is that Stan Parsons, who went off to do ranching for profit, he wanted to focus on the business and the financial side. Because he said, we got to save one ranch, and if we can save them through, through the economics, that's how we're going to save the rest. And Alan Savory was like, I'm not going to waste my time trying to change one ranch at, at a time. Everybody needs to do this right now. And... My dad obviously got infected with some of that too, because he was, it was probably later eighties. Um, he started to take advantage of some of those. I think it was great plains program through NRCS. It was soil oh, conservation yeah. service at the time to start doing cross fencing and to, to kind of call back to our temporary infrastructure conversation. So he was one of the first in the state to get funded to put in electric cross fencing. Okay. Sure. Well, I mean, now I probably wouldn't even go to the NRCS office to get funding to do that because I can do it for like 14 cents a foot. Okay. I mean, it, it, I can get it pretty cheap now. But back then, they're like, okay, we'll give you money for that, but it's got to be a three wire with two hots and a neutral ground hung on steel T fence post with plastic insulators. Yeah. I mean, you might as well build a barbed wire fence if you're going to do all that. Yeah. So, he built a bunch of that and, you know, over the years, you know, between when he built it in 2006, a lot of it came out, but I still had, I still had some of it that I ended up tearing out, um, after the wildfire in 2016, cause it was just wire needed to come out. And I was looking at the post, looking at how the paddocks in that, in that pasture were configured. I'm like, I don't like this at all. We're just going to, uh, the wires got to come, got to come out. We're going to pull all the posts. We're going to put them in a pile and I'm going to do something different over here. So that's what I did. Um, but yeah, there's, there's still some of that going around and I'm, I'm not even sure what they're allowing people to do now for, for electric fence, because at 14 cents a foot, it's just cheaper for me to buy the crap and go do it than to waste, waste any time driving to the office and doing paperwork. That's how I feel anyway. Yeah. It, it, you, you gotta jump through the hoops and check their boxes. And sometimes it, it, it's, it's beneficial to do that. And sometimes it, you got to look back, step back and say, maybe I should just 
Yeah. And there's some really good programs right now to help drill wells and put in water lines that I'm going to be trying to take advantage of in the next year. But I'm not going to put in any tanks. I'm just going to put quick connectorizers everywhere and then have a couple hundred feet of, of above ground line that I can hook onto that riser and run, you know, run 500 feet over and set one of those, uh, one of those big tanks that like Shane Barber down in South Dakota makes. Are you familiar with those? I'm not, but there's a guy here that, um, uh, friends with that lives close nearby. Uh, me, they're within 40 miles of his, uh, he has his own design and that's what he does. He risers and quick connects. Um, my, our deal was, is once we got the pipeline in the ground, we figured it wasn't too much more to just go ahead and put the tank and plus every tank we have can be used as a winter tank just with our squirter system and our, our, uh, overflows and stuff that we have in them. And we're really blessed also too, to be in pretty sandy ground. Maybe it's a blessing, maybe it's a curse, <laughs> but, uh, we can do like a French drain, uh, drain pile right into that sand. And so the overflow never frees up or anything like that. Pretty works pretty slick our system, but I can also see, we, we did start with the, we were going to do a bunch of banjo fittings and risers and, in a temporary tank, uh, we built our, our own temporary tank and we're moving it around and pulling some poly pipe over the ground, you know, from each, each, to each riser. But, uh, we wanted to kind of make this a, uh, very low labor and low maintenance system where if I get an intern or I get, uh, you know, my, my wife or, you know, not that my wife isn't very capable because she has anybody that is new, I can take them out and in a couple of days, get them trained to go move my cows and, and, you know, run the poly wire. My strips are, are 880 feet apart or a sixth of a mile. And then it's just really quick, uh, about 11 poly or 11 temporary posts and you're done rolling up your, your poly wire and you can leapfrog it. You know, we just leapfrog down the strip, but so that's kind of why we decided to do what we were doing with our tanks and stuff, as opposed to doing risers and temporary tanks. Um, I get, but I'm not opposed. There's always a. There's always something that fits somebody's ranch better than somebody else's. So I'm not opposed to any of the ideas that any other people are doing. Right. Tell me a little bit more about your, about how you freeze proof your water systems and freeze proof your water tanks, your valves and keep open water for cattle. Cause like let's face it, it's January, it's freaking cold. Yeah. We've all been out having to break ice and chop ice. How do you, how do you minimize that? So every one of our tire tanks has a, uh, well, they're poured with concrete in the middle, uh, filled with sand because we have it for about two thirds of the, of the middle. And then just to, we just take a, and buy quick creep, dump it in dry and tamp it down and get it compacted pretty good. And, and then we turn the, we'll put a four foot, uh, manhole ring in on top of that dry concrete and I'll chop a, a, a hole, you know, two inches by four inches or whatever in the bottom of that manhole ring. And we'll just turn the water on and that, uh, as we all know from science class in high school, concrete will set up underwater. And that is a quick, easy way that we, we can do our, 
our tire tank. And then I'll take a Watson valve. Are you familiar? Yep. I use lots of those. Um, and I'll take and run out the bottom of a bike, weld it to a railroad plate. I guess I forgot to say we come up through the middle of the tank with, uh, I guess it's inch, two inch PVC that goes into drain tile and goes into that sand. So you've got a two inch come up. You've got a built in two inch overflow in the center of the tank that goes to in the center of the tank. Yep. And then we also have a inch and a quarter riser poly that comes up right from a curb stop from our water line. And it comes up through the middle of the tank and on the top of that poly, we have a 90 degree bar fitting that, go, that it goes down to one inch heater hose. We t- tie into one inch heater hose off that bar fitting and we call it our whip hose. Now the one, most people will just melt the float permanent in the tank. Well, we have hundreds of tanks on this outfit now over the years. And so instead of having that many pretty pricey Watson floats, uh, or, you know, valves, we'll just. We just have all these six foot heater hoses, uh, tied into this, um, bar fitting and we have a banjo fitting on the end. And then we'll take and weld these Watson valves to a railroad plate. You ever see them railroad plates come off railroad ties? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. Big heavy chunk of flat iron. In other words, about six inches by a foot and they're about a half inch thick flat iron that, you know, with the railroad spike holes and the ridges and stuff in them. We just used them because we had some on hand. It was kind of an accident that we come up with this path. But uh, well, well done, Watson valves that and put a banjo fitting on it. That uh, the female banjo fittings go on the the Watson valve around the on the railroad plate in the valve, and then the male banjo end goes into the heater hose. And then that's how we'll move our floats from tank to tank in the summertime and then in the wintertime well on top of in addition on the watson valve we have a t that we come out with and uh one of them feral copper you know you can get them ferrules or whatever and it goes to a quarter inch uh copper tubing okay and we'll pinch the end shut a little bit to get a little velocity you know most people call it a gallon a minute restrictor or whatever we we'll just pinch the end of that copper tubing it's about six inches long uh comes up out of the this T that's right in front of the Watson valve and pinch the end of it shut. We're not shut, but kind of half waist. And that all that does is we've got really good pressure and we got a lot of wells on this place. So if you got to pinch that shut, it just increases the velocity and also uses a little less water. And it, that bubbles up on the float in that manhole, that man, uh, ring. Right. And then I take a piece of quarter inch, like fuel line, rubber, rubber hose. And I tie that into another uh, piece of copper tubing that goes out underneath the tank hole, you know, out to the outside ring of the tank, outside the manhole, through that hole like told you that chop. Yeah. And same deal, pinch that shut a little bit so it, it increases velocity. And even during that 64 degree wind chill, we chop a little bit of water depending on how open we have that that tubing i tell you sometimes we pinch a little too much and then you got to cut and restart uh, it was you know usually when it's really dog cold out you'll have a if, at the very least if you have a set right you'll have a two foot you know water hole for your cows to water out of and, and then we know when it's that cold 
they're not drinking a ton of water, but when you're feeding them pain, they'll think they're go keep their turn off. Yeah. And yeah. then we, we have a reducer uh, lid on the, that four foot ring that we can, uh, it goes down to like a two foot hole. And then we have these two foot lids that were insulated. It's all covered up. So it really, it really protects the, the float and the valve. And if you have to chop a little bit of ice on the outside, you can, or you, you know, if that all makes sense, I should have a picture for you. I don't really, I'm not techie enough to run this over zoom for you, but no, no, that's okay. I think I've got a pretty good picture. So, I mean, just at basics of it is you move the float valve and float assembly from tank to tank to save cost. Cause I mean, those Watson valves are great. Those Watson floats are great. They're not cheap. I've got, they're not cheap and they're good. Like anything that's built well isn't usually cheap. I mean, I've got, uh, I think 29 tanks. Yeah. And I think I only have maybe three of them that don't have a Watson float valve in them right now. Yeah. Yeah. You you own more float valves than we do. But dad, I mean, I, I totally get the point of, you know, of having these and just moving the high, you know, moving the expensive thing around. I get that. Um, that's just not how our systems are designed and in yep. and the way they were put in. So it sounds like you have, um, like some grid tied wells, water wells. Yeah. We have, uh, four wells that all work together. They're all tied in together. And that's, that's where I'm kind of a little bit, that's where, kind of where I struggle is on part of the ranch, I've got good grid connected power and I've got good wells on a lot of the rest of the ranch. I don't have access to electricity, so I have to make my you got solar. Yeah. And the, the thing like, you know, when you're talking about how you set up your, your freeze proofing, you know, with the small diameter line that was neck down to, you know, generate pressure and make a spray. I don't have enough pressure or flow or volume to do that overnight. Like I just can't pump enough water during the four hours I get of sunlight a day in the winter time to make up for that other, you know, 18 hours that I'm trying to, you know, trickle water to keep it from freezing. So that's a challenge. That's a challenge that I deal with when it gets super cold is I've either got to put the cows where the, where they're going to have some free water, where the Creek or pond or whatever, or I'm out two, three times a day breaking the ice. And I just haven't figured out a way around that with, you know, with my lower pressure water systems. Maybe someday I will, maybe I won't, but, um, uh, well, one, one of my dad's famous things is every ranch has an unfair advantage. And, uh, I think actually somebody maybe, I don't know what, maybe it was one of them big namers said that, but maybe we stole it. <laughs> it stuck with us in other words. Uh, you know, we've probably got a few that I can name, but one of ours has been, we have a really close relationship with our, our, our well or our pipeline our pipeline man and, and him and my dad, it kind of, I hate to use the word invented, but designed and came up with a lot of this stuff, just them two knocking ideas together. You know what I mean? And, and in turn, when you get two guys, you're, when you're on the same page as your, your waterworks guy or your pipeliner, um, it, good things can happen. You know what I mean? Especially when he's willing to come up with new ideas with you, what's going to work for you. And I, I know a lot of guys that when they hire a pipeline man to come in, it's his way or the other way. It don't matter how they wanted to put it in. It's just, well, this is what it's going to be. 
we've got a really I don't know how to say it. We got a really good water well crew, water well pipeline crew in this area yeah. down here. Um, guy's been doing it for for probably forty years. Okay, so if you call him, you're like, "Hey, Jess, I got a leak." You know, you know, I'll get out pasture map and I'll you know kind of zoom in on it. I'll make a circle, then I'll you know draw a road out and I'll just text it to him. Yeah. And he'll show up and he'll fix it. And then he'll call me and be like, yeah, we got it fixed. We're on our way out. I'm like, oh, what was it? He's, oh, those glue joints I did 40 years ago finally fit yeah. pipeline. You're like, oh, well, at least you know who did it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I had that happen on some two inch PVC, like just 35, 40 year old glue joints. And you didn't have that happen, then you're, you're lying to yourself. Because the distance is going to happen at least every once in a while. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's to the point where, or it's not to the point, but I can, I can maybe see a point in the future where I might just have to buy my own trencher and learn how to dig up water lines because I have to dig up so much of that 30, 40, 50 year old water line for the joints that are just eventually going to fail. Like it, it, that's something, that's something I've really started to think about a lot in the last 10 years is, you know, we design systems to last 20 years. Yeah. Hello. I mean, hello. I'm still going to be here. Like, I'm going to have to rebuild that in 20 years. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that I'm getting close to because, I mean, I've been here, uh, you know, I've been here since 2006, been running my business since 08. Like, there's yeah. tanks that I put in brand new that I'm looking at going, like, man, that thing's older than shit. <laughs> I, just for just for a kind of comparison, I spent on this place. You know, in the process of our evolution of learning how to build what we call uh, correct or you know, let, do an electric fence right. Since we started in the eighties, there's fences in this place that I've rebuilt myself in my lifetime. Not just rebuilt myself, but in my lifetime that we have built and rebuilt three times. Just trying to you know, as things evolved and changed, and well, we did that wrong and. You know, we tried the steel post route. We 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 tried the uh, you know the after pro posts, the flexible ones. Oh yeah, yep. Been there, done that. We, we tried those and all those. Yanked all those out. Had to redo all those. We we're not we're not uh, unwilling to try something new around here, but it's a lot of times it does bite us in the butt. But, but what's that Edison quote? You know, the national treasure made famous. I learned how I learned how to do it. Build a light bulb, whatever it was. However many times the wrong way. Right. Yeah. I didn't, he didn't fail to make a light bulb a thousand times. He learned a thousand wrong ways to make a light bulb. Yes. Yes. Yep. yep. Well, I like to say, you know, you didn't fail. You learned some. F-A-I-L stands for first attempt in learning. Yep. So, you know, treat everything like a learning experience. All right. Tell me, um, Tell me about, the, I, I keep tripping over myself and not knowing where I'm going to go. Tell me about the cow hanging on the wall behind you. Oh, uh, well, actually that deer head back there, that is uh, the Montana Centennial cattle drive that happened in 89, I think it was. It, it ran from Roundup to Billing and they had a kind of, a, it was big to do. They started in Roundup, which is 45 miles north of Billings and they had a, 
you know, the wagons and the old truck wagons and the cowherd and cowboys and outriders and, and anybody that sounded to me like I wasn't alive for it, but anybody that wanted to, uh, get on it, uh, could, and my dad did, and he bought this as a live, you know, yearling steer or whatever it was at the time of the cattle drive. It was on the cattle drive. He bought it. And then as it grew up, it, it, uh, got transferred to the wall. Let's say he looks so like he's a little history, kind of a neat, neat story. Probably looks like he was maybe around three when he went to freezer camp. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what kind of cattle do you guys run now? Um, black ink, uh, black ink, or actually just the Angus. I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm kind of colorblind. I don't care if they're red or black. I went, I would say 90% of our herd is black Angus. We have some red influence just from a little bit of this and that here and there. Okay. So we were talking before I matched record, but for just a couple of minutes and you talked, you said something about matching cattle to fit the environment. So how have you done that mm-hmm. with your Angus? How have you guys done that on the Meyer ranch with Angus cattle? Well, uh, to go back in history, uh, like I say, I'm drawing on a lot of, uh, just sitting around listening to my old man, but, uh, in the 88, they dropped out. Dad said they dropped out so bad that the weed didn't even green it up around the corral. And so they had to sell all of their cows and, um, in turn, when he went to rebuild in 90, you know, 89, 90, 91, it was, he was going all over the state and looking at cattle and. You know, he, he was going to rebuild the Sunbuck right, you know, and he went and talked to anybody, you know, they, when they called the Montana Mafia now, and back then even, maybe they called it that, it was like Sitzelbaum, Stevenson's, uh, the Envar and all of them. And he went and talked to a lot of them and just kind of toured the state looking at cattle. And I, he got hooked up with. I don't know where he bought the cows from, but bought some cows and he got hooked up using, uh, EXT way back in the day, AI. Okay. And so we used him and he's always just, you know, and which is kind of a testament to my dad back then, because back then, if you look back in history of the cows back then, you know, you had Leachman and all these guys and, and everything was bigger, 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 bigger. I mean, you couldn't put enough height and leg underneath these cattle. And he always just hated those cows and, and they didn't, maybe he says that he doesn't know what he's doing, but he must've known what he's doing uh, because to, or why he liked the smaller modern rotter cows. And I guess he, you know, obviously he knew they were going to perform better in our area, but, um, just always concentrated on using the, those. So in, in turn, we use some EXT and, you know, kind of some odds and ends bloodlines through those years. And then, you know, got on, we used a little bit of Pharaoh, uh, uh, dad, dad, new kid a little bit. And then we, we, we really worked good for us as well. After doing all of what we'd done previous years was using, uh, oldie, Tim Aldi and his stuff. And then we got hooked up with a guy by the name of Gerald Fry and, and he was kind of preaching some of his flawed speech to us and came and evaluated our cow herd and, and this would have been in the early 2000s, the first time he came like 2003, four ish. 
and he kind of encouraged my dad to maybe start keeping some of his own bulls and and using our own sons and breeding back to our own herd, you know. And then in turn, I think it was maybe 2007 or 8-ish, my dad ran into a guy by the name of Ian Mitchell. Out of South Africa? Africa. At the grass bed exchange in Aberdeen, South Dakota, I think it was. And Ian Mitchell was breeding all of his cows, or taking all, keeping all of his bull calves and selecting the top percent, 10 percent, who knows what, I wasn't there and I didn't hear a spiel, but they keep, you know, taking the top percentage and using those yearling bulls on his own herd and then turning around and selling them as two-year-olds to all of his neighbors. My dad said, well, that's a money making, I'll do that. <laughs> and in turn, if your genetics are there and what you're doing, stand out if you're only taking the top 5% are obviously the ones that are working in your environment. And so uh, that's what we started doing. We started keeping our own bulls and using them as yearlings. And then we would get them in and, and we'd rough them through the winter. We'd rough them the whole time, actually. But that's, you know, another thing my dad always said, and, and I believe in a lot of people I talk to believe in now is, you know, bulls only got to work a month and a half, two months out of the years. I, when I feed them to the other, you know, he better figure out, he can, he can eat tree bark. Oh, he's got to do and get, you know, get through the winter. And so we were, we were roughing them and then selling what I like to call cowboy bulls now or ranch bulls as two-year-old. And, uh, man, they would hit that green grass in May and just explode anyway. And they didn't have wrecked feet from the feedlot issues. They didn't have fertility issues from the feedlot. I think in all the years that we were doing it and have been doing it, um, I've only tested three bulls badly that we raised and a couple of those, she said that I shouldn't say that maybe it was five bulls, something like that. Not over five, but a couple of those, you know, there's always the, well, you can come back in and retest it. You know, there's a little blood in the semen. We can give them a shot, come back in and retest it. Well, kind of a once fail you every time fail on this outfit. So we say, no, we don't need to sell a bull bad enough to, to, uh, you know, do that. So we just, he just went down the road. I guess he didn't get to be a bull. That's how we maintained our quality. And then also we didn't, we were able to sell them very reasonable to, like I said, they were cowboy bulls or rancher bulls because they, I think they made money for our customers because we didn't, we were selling a very good product, I think. And we didn't have any money in yep. essentially just grass and so we were able to sell them bulls for 2,500 bucks a, a piece or 3,000 bucks a piece a lot of year. And, and, you know, everybody always asks us, well, a lot of guys are buying heifers. We didn't, we always guaranteed it. We wouldn't guarantee them as heifer bulls per se, because we, it's hard to always say that, oh, this one's going to work. Cause you always have that one black sheep that seems to sneak through somewhere and whatnot. But I guess that happens with every bull program. But one thing we'd always say is, is, well, the way we calve our cows is April, May, and they get kicked out into what I call the back 40 or, you know, out there. And, and my dad was kind of a, and keep on saying my dad, but us as a collective family now, we just have the philosophy that when we go out there, if the weather's right, when we go out there and we're dinking with them, we're probably causing more wrecks than we're helping 
in a lot of cases, if you have the right kind of cows and especially since we've been doing it for as long as we have. And so I always tell people, well, one reason, one way I kept my birth weight low is if it was a, it was a heavy birth weight and it never got to, it didn't live probably for, you know, it, that's just how you, the cow died. Maybe the cow died, maybe the calf died. You know, obviously we, if we go out there and we see a problem, cause we do go ride through them once a week or so, or try to go check them. But it, you know, if we can save something, we do, I'm not going to try and say that we're just out there and let, you know, not trying to be bad caretakers, but, uh, I mean, anything that doesn't, way to, anything that gets check bread and is confirmed bread that doesn't bring one in at branding time, doesn't matter the reason, get on the bus, yeah. you're gone, you're gone. I had one time, uh. I was talking to a guy, one rancher friend of mine, and I said, we were having that discussion. I said, well, what if, you know, because we get them in in the, in the spring and we sort off all these dries, right? And they all go. Well, then you still have the, the fall dries or what we call summer dries in fall after you get through the summer. And, and obviously those need to go too, right? And we was talking and, and kind of having a rancher discussion with two or three guys. And somebody said, well, what if that cow's calf got struck by lightning? And he said, well, I don't care. She shouldn't have him standing in that corner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I need to take a quick break. I got to go recycle some coffee. I'll be right yep. back. Okay. But just, just before that little break, we were talking about, uh, you're, we're talking about your bulls and your cows and pushing them and. I listen to you talk about how you treat your bulls. Like, dude, I'm on board. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me to have, to buy a bull for your operation that comes from something completely different. And by that, I'm saying, if you're a pasture-based operator that's doing strip grazing on native grass or on planted forages or whatever, get your bulls from a program that looks like yours. Yes. Yep. Don't go buy your bulls from, from whoever Facebook says is the best place to buy an Angus bull or whatever, whatever the flavor of the month is you're looking for. Yep. Go visit that, go visit that ranch. You're going to buy the bulls from and see how they develop the bulls. If they've got them all in a pen and every pen has a feed bunk and they've got a bunch Saw of feed bins and mixer trucks, don't buy a bull from there unless your operation at home looks like that because yep. those bulls will not make good calves for you to eventually make good functional cows. Which, you know, there's the, there's the cowman side of the game. And then there's the, the production side of the game and we're have to be linked, but what's good for the cattleman is not always good for the feedlot, which is not always good for the packer and getting everything squared is kind of a challenge. And I, I think that when we really challenge our cattle, our bulls, and our production cows in an environment, the more those crutches we kick out from under, mm -hmm. yeah, there's going to be pain. There's going to be, there's going to be, you know, low conception rates. There's going to be fallout. Oh man. I've, I've seen that. I, you know, I, I've got the stories that, I mean, well, I'm not going to say that it's all been sunshine and rain, but <laughs> well, and that's, and that's what I think a lot of people have to get past is they want to win every year. I don't need to win every year. Just give me a good base hit. I mean, hell, sometimes tie and I'll take a loss every once in a while because that's the name of the game. And 
you know, the grass isn't always consistent. The yep. rain's not always consistent. The temperature's not always consistent. And it makes things, you know, it makes it challenging to have consistency in production. Um, one of my biggest challenges is feeding through the winter. And you yeah. Know, yeah, I'm a lot farther south than you are. So when it does warm up, if I've got moisture, I'll get some cool season grass growth, which is going to be good for gains, going to have a lot of protein, great for the cows. There's some winters where you don't need to supplement a whole lot. And then there's winters like the ones we're having where, you know, yeah, there's a lot of cake and there's a lot of hay getting hauled because it's it's been a little abnormally cold and we've had plenty of ground cover. So what's, how do you guys feed through the winter? Well, we were, being in, in what we, you know, this story and this journey that I told you for as long as we have, um, we were purists for a long time, you know, it seemed like everybody was, and when they get by into the system, you know, I'm going to, especially if you're hardcore, you know, I'm not going to feed anything, but Hey, I'm, you know, grass and hay and by golly, if my cows can't survive on that, then, then they don't obviously belong to be here. Now I will say that is still a good way to go. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but about by four years ago, 2020, since 2020, uh, we've had some, and even 16 and 17 before that were really tough. Uh, we ran into some years, man, we've had some drought and, and kind of some hard years. And, and on top of that, it, we've had some grasshoppers. And last year we had the grasshoppers and the flies, but so we had the rainfall, but then we have the grasshoppers in the flies. And when they, they just throw wrinkles in the stuff, right? You know, uh, we used to do a lot of flash grazing and with our yearlings in the spring and go and nip. I call it flash grazing. I'm sure you're probably familiar with, with the practice, maybe not the term, but, but go and can you break that down for me? Order the plant and move the yearlings really fast and set it. Set these because I grade a lot of tame pastures. My place is split half and half between tame and native. Um, and them tame pastures are always ready all at the same time, you know what I mean? And so, if I can go nip the top quarter of that plant, then I can come back in with them yearlings. Then I can, I was getting really good gains with my yearlings because all the, the best part of the goody in that plant is on the top of it, you know, in that time of year. And then I'm coming right back with my cows and calves. And, and great, going to regrace that stuff. Uh, and it set it back and made it stay greener longer, you know, in the end of uh, July and, and maybe even August, depending on the year. And those are the dog days in our country, you know, and probably a lot of people's country when things get really tough. And so when you have your average years without grasshoppers, that really works. And then you throw some drought and you throw some grasshoppers in there, things get a little more challenging. And and then this year we had grasshoppers and flies, but we had the rainfall. So trying to figure out how to manage around that has been tough. But to go back to your original point, we decided, man, we're going to have to start uh, supplementing a little bit because we're just, you know, the grass, for one instance, the grasshoppers, anything we flash grades, the grasshoppers were just coming back through and just mulling over you and any of that green stuff. And so we're, when we're trying to breed in August, there, and if, if we're out on that, native for that same pasture and you're trying to breed and you got all these stems out there we decided well maybe we should go out there and and feed a, a protein source to help them digest them and stemmy grass and so we've done a little bit of that i tried to feed the i'm feeding 
I guess it's a plug for my feed guy, but I'm, right now I'm feeding a high protein cake out of uh, Mile City. It's Mugly Feed out of Mile City, uh, Mugly Brother Feed, and they have this pallet uh, that I'm feeding. It's a cake, I guess. I'm feeding three quarter inch pallet that is alfalfa and sunflower and peas. And I told them, the only reason I came up with this is I told them I wanted as high a protein as I could get without deep. Okay. And so I'll feed some of that and I'm kind of liking that pretty good. And what's the fat um, content in that cake? I, I actually haven't yet. I just don't have, we, it's kind of been a crazy fall for us, uh, but I need, I've been telling them, you know, we need to get that sent in and get a, get a, it's, I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a lot it's with what is in it. It's all more about protein and, and using that protein to uh, help break down that that old, old grass that we've got, you know, whether it be native or whatever. So. Just, just anecdotally, I think, uh, I think if a guy can get cake that is higher in fat, like eight, 10% fat and around 20% protein, I think that'd be a good deal. And I might even say, I might even be afraid to look at or not. I might even look at like something that was a little more like 12 or 14% if that fat was up around eight to 10. And I really know why I'm saying that. I just, just the last several winters of looking at cows and, you know, supplementing different cow herds on the ranch differently. I think, I think having that extra fat in the winter supplement really makes a difference. And I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Uh, t- that's tough for the whole cake deal is really tough because you're looking at a lot of DVDs, a lot of crap, and a lot of these mixtures that you don't want. And yeah. so I kind of just went bare bone and told him, that's why I told him, you know, I want this without DDGs. I don't, I don't like DDGs and I don't think they're good for cattle, especially in, in my production cycle, being a, a producer, a cow calf producer, primarily, you know, I raise my own yearlings. And I take in some yearlings, but for me to keep my female and my bulls, uh, the quality of those up, I need to keep an eye on what I'm feeding them for reasons we've already talked about, I think, or at least touched on a little bit. And so that's why I've got what I got. And I do know that those cows of ours with how we've developed them over the years thrive on dried out, mature, you know, decadent, you know, you know, um, morbid, I guess, grass. Um, and that cake, you know, and we're stockpiled grass, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we can stockpile some winter, winter forage and, and cake them. And, you know, if I can get some, if I can get consistently get some second cut hay in, I would, I would be a lot more tempted to feed a lot more of that as a supplement throughout the winter on roll on a bale of that every once in a while for them. Uh, the problem with me is, uh, in Eclock, uh, it's two hours away from the nearest Walmart and coincidentally two hours nearest your gate as well. Okay. So it's tough to get a consistent second cutting um, product in here. And okay. so cake is something we can always get. And so that's probably why we're using it. I did buy a couple loads of second cutting alfalfa this year, but uh, just something we got to keep our nose to the grindstone and keep figuring out what we can get, what we can use. And I'm, I'm not a, to try the different feed options i just 
always got to try and figure out what's something that maybe is the right price and, and going to work. And that's the trick is the right, the, the right price is more anything it is. That's, that's, that's been the biggest challenge for me is finding something that I want to feed at the right price. Cause there's all kinds of crap out there and a lot of cheap crap. And you might not always want to feed that. And maybe I'm a, you know, I'm kind of fortunate here where I'm in this kind of, not even going to say an island of grass, but there's a big area kind of around me that of, of, of this just grass because it's too steep and too rocky to farm. But just north of me, like less than an hour, there's plenty of irrigation and plenty of huge alfalfa farms. So alfalfa has been fairly inexpensive historically here. Um, I mean, I, I don't even know. I didn't even get a price quote. I don't even have a current price quote for five months. Like five months ago, they were wanting um, 270 a ton delivered. For, yeah, and that was out of my price range. So I just went and found something else. Um, it's something else you said that I think is kind of funny. So you said it was two hours to Walmart. Yeah. So we're two hours away as our shopping mall town. That's Wichita. 45 minutes is the Walmart town. Dollar general is 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, we're kind of similar. Uh, we got a dollar general or I think it's a dollar general, uh, 40 minutes away. Dollar General, Family Dollar, yeah, the, the, they're all the same kind of, all the same kind of carry and eater. Yeah. Can't remember what last... I always tell people where we live, you know, they, how can you live there? I always say, well, it's the last best. How can you live there? Well, it's pretty easy. I just go home every day. I mean... Yeah, go you, home every day. One just simply does not go to the 7-Eleven for a Coke and a candy bar when you feel like it, when you live that far from town. Like, you... you plan that shit ahead like yeah when we go to when we go to the costco or go to do our you know costco's four hours away but that's where we have family and stuff so we believe it or not, we do do a lot of our grocery shopping four hours away from home but yeah we we bring the the pickup load home you know for the month when you don't have to bring home meat though and worry about it defrosting yeah you already have freezers full of that it makes the grocery store trip a little bit simpler Yes. Yeah. So, um, you also mentioned you guys do some cover cropping. So tell me about that and how that works. So like, and maybe also give me an idea, of of how that land, you said 11,000 acres of how the land base is split between like farmable land and just grazing land. Well, there's about 4,500 acres of, um, kind of, this is kind of rough, rough guess here. Not really that rough, but. Pretty close of a native pasture that's got draws and good winter protection and uh, good, you know, good native grasses, what's supposed to be here, right? And then uh, the other half is a little farm ground that was farmed out, you know, the, our great, my great granddad's generation, they rolled in here in the, the you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s just broke it up, farmed it up. And, and I've heard somewhere before that there's the formula, you know, the, the first 10 years, they got the cream of the crop. And then the next 40, they farmed and, and it was profitable. And then after that, it, 
you, you, you were working with depleted soils or something like that. I don't know if that was very standard for everywhere, but I can just think about all this. You know, we're in sandy soil to begin with, and all these guys came out here and they broke it and then they farmed it and then they farmed it and farmed it and farmed it and farmed it. And, farmed it. and you know, most of the time weed on, weed on, weed on, weed on, weed. I got to go to funny uh, thing about weed farmers. I always like to tell, and I tell my buddies that are weed farmers to this too, but there's this one weed farmer that was one broke and the, went to the bank and said, said, uh, well, sir, you're going to have to do something different. This wheat farm and you're going broke. We're not going to research. So he goes home and he does a bunch of research. He figures out, hey, I'm going to plant some watermelon. So he plants some watermelons and bam, he's got a booming crop of watermelon. And he does this for four or five years and, and goes in and he pays the bank off. The bank says, well, now what are you going to do? He says, man, I'm going to go plant some wheat. <laughs> But anyway, that's what happened on the bigger plot where I, uh, where this ranch is and on the edge of what we call the beaver flat divide and all this stuff up on top is really productive and alfalfa and grass really loves it, but it's really tough to get natives started on depleted for so long. And so, and then the CRP program hit and a lot of ranchers left and then just, you know, CRP their land up and and got paid to be absentee, you know, own their land. And then they all moved to California or wherever, you know, a lot of them. And so you have all this, you know, back then when it seemed like everybody that planted a CRP or you planted to get into the CRP, planted uh, alfalfa and crested wheatgrass. Okay. And we bought a bunch of that land. And then so a lot of it was spiked in and rough. And some of it was rough, so rough you hate to ride your saddle horse crop, you know. And so I do, I am all on board with the no-till and, and I'm, I'm, I apologize to the no-till listeners for doing that, but, uh, it was so rough that we, we needed to fix it. And so we had, we didn't, for one reason, we didn't have a no-till drill and we didn't have the sprayer, but we, my dad knew that we could go in and disc it up and, you know, get it smoothed up and plant it back to you know, it used to be back in the nineties and early two thousands, he'd just plant it uh, like if it was on his own farm ground, it was an old burnt up hay field and you could plant that for wheat for a year or two. And then you could plant grass and alfalfa and that always seemed to work. You know, that was the old recipe, but, uh, when we got, you know, cover cropping and everything got more interesting in the uh, late two thousands and us getting kind of more familiar with it, I guess. And we decided we, we'd break some of the CRP up and that we had just bought and just came out of CRP. It was kind of all the timing issue, the way it worked. We broke it up and then we planted a cover crop with some of the stuff we planted to cover the crop for three years. And then we planted But there had to be some pubescent and some alfalfa and some green needle and some Western. And, and we, 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 you know, there was kind of a five species mix we were using for quite a few years. Because we know it worked and we knew it would grow, right? And, and then the further we got down the trail of, well, we've kind of screwed up. We've got too many monocultures up here on this game. We've got to try and increase the amount of species. And so our latest ones, how we've done it is, is we'll go in there and, and break up. We broke up that CRP and we planted it to a cover crop. And then we went back and planted it to a cover crop. 
and the grants native grants native and alfalfa just a lot of stuff we like and we use the cover crop as what they call a companion crop or whatever now just really light dose and then in by doing that we got a little use out of it in the fall in some winter green you know it wasn't a lot of cover crop but you know what did come we could we keep it a little fall winter green and not hurt the incoming native uh, native you know i shouldn't say native but our incoming new aftermath so is is that kind of the philosophy going forward with you know that half of the ranch that's retired farm ground old crp is is to do cover crops and incorporate native native seeds in the mix with the hope that the natives eventually get established and start taking over is that the hope well yeah uh, i got a kind of another story um my dad bought a hay field or some some of this ground we're talking about was fighting cheatgrass on it and stuff and so he planted back to grass up out and the cheatgrass came and so he man he, 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 japanese bro whatever yeah. that's what we call cheatgrass you know you're sure you are yeah. Um, just hate that definition. And so he went in there and he, you know, we had a field cultivator at the time and he went in there and field cultivated it and just, just scratched the top and killed all the cheatgrass, you know, just tore all the cheatgrass out. And when, in turn, when you do that, it seems like all you do is pit the alfalfa off. You know? So we didn't really kill any of that out. And then we, he planted a, a more extensive native grass mix, uh, some big blue, uh, some Western, some green needle, a bunch of stuff. Well, then we, for the last 10 years, I've just been raising it in my grazing system. Or maybe it's actually been longer than that now. It's been more like 15 years now. But in 2019, all of a sudden we saw a ton of big blue come up in that. And dad couldn't remember planting any big blue in that night. And so he was thinking, man, we're really doing our hairy. You know, we, we got we got some big blue coming, you know, right? There must be this in the seed bank here, you know? Well, we got to looking back and all dad had, there was two bags of big blue that he had, that had sitting around and he said, yeah, I'll just throw these in. And dad said, yeah, we'll throw them in, in the mix. Fine. And it took 10 years for that to show up. I never saw it in that field before then. And so through grazing practices and getting our soil health up, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is even though we planted it and it didn't come, it, it must have still been there. You know what I mean? Like a seed bank issue. I have a theory. Okay. Yeah. I have a theory because, okay. So similar situation on this ranch. When dad took it over in the late eighties, there was a couple hundred acres of farm ground. And the way, the way he got control of the land and the way that great grandfather's estate was settled, he didn't have a tractor. Like he wasn't given, like he didn't get any of the tractors or any of the farm machinery. He yes. just got yes. the land. And, yeah. you know, a lot of that other machinery was, you know, it was already 20 or 25 years old at that point. So it was, you know, it got sold off. So he gets this, he gets a property with a couple hundred acres of farm ground. So he went to the NRCS office and, or soil conservation, whatever the hell it was then. And, yep. uh, and talked to them. And by his the way he tells it is he got a couple bottles of tequila, an old 77 Chevy pickup with a 350 and a four speed. And he went to town and he got the no-till drill and he filled it full of grass seed. And he put that truck in four low and first gear and drank tequila and drove around the pasture. 
I like it. Now, I I don't remember any of this because this is like 1985, right? Yeah. I'm sure all the rows were perfectly GPS straight and everything looked oh yeah looked nice, right? So I didn't really pay attention to that part of the ranch. I mean, like I was a little kid growing up. I just wanted to go ride my four-wheeler, right? Yeah. So it was when I came back from the Navy in 2006. That was one of the things that dad and I went and looked at is, you know, because there's a, there's a, you know, kind of one of our major access roads cutting right through there. We call it farm fields. We got a North farm field, South farm field. Then the next, next one over to the West, I call North Indian, South Indian. I mean, everything's got to have a name. I mean, nothing's racist. It's just, that's what the name was that came to me. So over the course, I'll like to say from 2007 to 2014, you know, we're grazing down there. We're trying different grazing pressure, different move schemes, and the grass just really isn't spectacular. Well, then we had a little, um, then we had a wildfire in 2016 called Anderson Creek. Burned about 340 odd thousand acres, including 100% of this ranch, like 95% of the wood that was on this ranch, like not just trees, but fence posts, 95% of the wood gone. Like, yeah, dude, I had to, I spent the whole summer of 2016 rebuilding fence, putting in corners and building gates. Like that was my yeah. life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then in the aftermath of all that, you know, like it also gave me a great opportunity to like re-zero everything on the whole ranch and monitor grass growth. So I did an awful lot of that. And as I was touring through that south part of the ranch, I was starting to see grasses that weren't there a year ago or two years ago. Like, well, what is this? Well, that's big blue. Well, that's Indian grass. So your point of having that seed lay dormant in the seed bank for a long time hits home because I experienced the same thing. So part of my theory is, now you described your soil as sandy. I would describe my soil as sandy loamy. So probably probably pretty similar. And my theory about what happened. So when dad planted it back in the eighties, it was just grass seed. He came back in like, but 98, 99 or 2000 and put some Forbes seed back on there. My theory is it was never deep ripped. So there was that plow pan that was four to six inches down. And it just took the plants almost 20 years for their roots to go down and penetrate that pan and start to break that pan that the the really tall, deep-rooted C4 grasses like Big Blue and Indian grass, it just took them so long to be able to get down and break that pan. It had to have other plants help it break the pan. It just took so long for the soil conditions to get right for those plants. That's why we didn't see them. That's why it may take 10 years after you throw out some of those seeds before you see them express themselves, I think. So kind of going back to your original question is what are we going to do now? Well, we sold the drill and we sold the, what we were using as a high-speed disc, a joker, a Fort Anderson joker for a lot of this stuff. We sold all that. And now I just plan on doing kind of some fun things like you're talking about getting the tequila and getting in the tractor and just going out there and plants and stuff that I like and seeing what comes, you know what I mean? Uh, I know that's an expensive proposition and I'm not going to like, it's not like I'm going to go do the whole ranch in one year, 
But I know that I, my end goal is to get a lot more species drawn. And I've asked so many farmers, or what I, you know, I, I call them farmers and they, some of them take offense, but I, I ask so many people that know more about farming than I do, because I do not claim to be a farmer or know a lot about it. But, you know, how do I? And they, everybody's response usually is, well, you've got to spray it and then you've got to replant it. Well, I don't want to spray it and replant it. I like a lot of what I got. I just want to add two. And I have not gotten any clear cut answers or recipes, and I'm sure there probably isn't one. That was an encouraging, like you're saying, that's encouraging to hear your story and to uh, see the results on some of the stuff I've seen that you know, if I could just get it out there, maybe I'll start, maybe in the future, it'll be dividend. Yeah. And people shouldn't get hung up on, well, I planted that. How come that didn't grow in yeah. one year? Okay. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It didn't grow. Go ahead, nuke it with chemical, plow it up and start over again next year. Like that, that's a worthwhile strategy. And we want to think that the natural world follows you know, is going to, is going to do what we want. And it really doesn't like the more variables we leave in the system, the more, the more natural we leave the system, the more unpredictable the result. Yeah. And just, just have to roll with that. Um, moving on. Tell me about land trust. How'd you get hooked up with land trust? Oh man, my sister done some, um, well, consulting work in the regenerative egg stuff and grazing and stuff like that. Uh, called Age Open Egg Consulting. And that's our brand you can see on my hat. Okay. Uh, she's off the ranch and married to an engineer now, but that she obviously takes pride where she came from and used it in her name. But she, uh, she and my dad were at a winter thaw, they call it, in Billing. And... Colton had just kind of started this company and gotten it going. Not Colton, sorry, Nick. And uh, I think Colton was there as well. But Nick had just gotten this started. And my sister knows one of Nick's friends, this culture degrees out of Billing, uh, the Joliet area. And they all kind of got to talking. And, and Nick kind of got to talking with my dad. And you know Nick. And, it's pretty easy to talk to. Yep. And so he, he said, you know, you guys shouldn't really look into this. And they brought it, uh, the idea home to me. And I said, well, geez, I've always been, you know, most everything's usually worth a phone call at least, you know? And, and they said, well, we'll just come out and take pictures and look and, and, you know, look at your place and take pictures and kind of shoot you some options and what you can do. And ever since then, I've actually done ads for them and, and, and they came to my place and did a, a commercial, I guess you could call it. Um, and we just had a real good relationship. So I, I wouldn't say I was one of the founding members, but I was supposed to, uh, the beginning of their journey. And, and I knew that it was going to go big because it's just, it's just really good. It's, I think it's just a really good thing they've got going on. Uh, it's no skin off anybody's back. And. My area, and I'm sure you probably have the same deal in your country and maybe a different uh, dynamic, but the Minnesotans during hunt season just flooded this country and they all want to come hunt, you know, became little Minnesota almost. 
Louisiana and Florida. <laughs> Louisiana <laughs> and Florida, where all ours are from. Yeah, so you can relate. Different, different dynamics, different, different people or area they pulled from, but the same situation. And my dad always said that there's no, there's nobody cheaper than a Minnesota hunter. And they used to come here and they would, you know, hunt and you wouldn't ever get anything out of them. And not that, you know, we're not trying to be an outfitter or anything, but it, sometimes it's nice that they throw you a coat or a, a bottle of whiskey or, a, you know, something. And a lot of times they wouldn't. And I'm not going to say that all of them were like that. Cause we do have a lot of friends from Minnesota that were, did start this. That's kind of what left a sour taste in a lot of the people in our area's mouth is, you know, hunting on hunting and hunters is what that era of hunters. And so when land trust came along and, you know, they're doing background checks and, and, you know, they're carrying the insurance and they're doing the advertising and, and I get to say yay or nay and still have complete control of my place. I mean, it sounded like an operator to me. And so I said, yes. And, and. I just saw Nick last week. I delivered some beef to him. He bought some beef for me. So, oh, that's why he told me no when, That's why he told me no when I offered to send him a box of cow. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's that's. Hey, I'm all about it. Shake the hand that feeds you. I'm a little further away. You're close and can go meet him face to face. And I I fully support that. Yes. Yeah. So what's been? I guess I mean. It, Deer hunting, bird hunting, coyote hunting, you know, pretty much the usual stuff. What's the most unusual thing that you've done through land trust? Oh, I wouldn't say it's unusual, but the one that surprised me the most is the turkey hunt. Okay. Where a turkey hunter will come from and what they'll do to come hunt a turkey. And I just, I never saw the opportunity. That was, that's what's cool about it too, though, is I never saw the opportunity to sell turkey hunts on my place. And it be so rewarding for the, the customer, I guess, or for the hunter to come do it. And so that I'm still, I'm still getting into the agritourism and maybe it's my area that's a little bit for the agritourism to kick in, but I do offer horseback riding and stuff like that. And then I've got camper hookups and stuff uh, that, that work for campers, but I haven't really had anybody show up and want to do anything like that yet. But that is a little bit newer on the land trust thing. So I'm hoping to get a little bit more into that. People want to come right on the ranch and, you know, enjoy, enjoy what God created. Then that'd be great. Love for them to come see the place. And I think it's important for us as ranchers. That's also what I tell a lot of people that are interested in land trust. It's important for us ranchers to get the hunters from the city and the people from wherever. And then, and then, and then we could build this bridge between the, the rancher and the beef and the customer in the customer, you know, a lot easier and spread our message a lot more, you know? Yeah. Outreach, public outreach. And you know, if yep. you have a little bit of beef to sell and somebody's yeah. coming out to you get them in the yard, well, every hunter has a cooler too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, that's a great point. You know, they probably did show up with a cooler because they expected to take an animal home and you know, Hey, if you didn't get a deer this year, I'll tell you yeah. what. I'll make sure you go home with full coolers, no matter yeah, what you do. Yeah. Then, then think about that one. I mean, I have sold a little bit. Um, I have sold some of my beef to some of my land trust guests. Um, so, and that's definitely, you know, that's definitely an avenue. Yes. Yep. All about getting more. I mean, 
the more people, the more eyeballs, foot traffic, that all eventually translates to sales of some kind if you've got a product worth selling. Yes. All right. Um, so tell me, uh, tell me what's the best advice you'd have for somebody that's wanting to start out in farming or ranching or agriculture today? Just, sorry to be chuckling, but I'm sitting at the top of my head, there's a little football coach up here from Butte named Bob Green. And one of his famous quotes is, is we're kind of like a woodpecker in a pet pride forest. Just keep busy and look for opportunity. But uh, that's, I mean, look for opportunities in, in a lot of areas. But Ben, you know, I think we get stuck in a rut in agriculture. Uh, you know, this is the way that our grandpa did it. This is the way that our dad did it. This is the way that I'm going to do it. And that just don't work anymore. And in a lot of, in a lot of cases, it hasn't been working, right? So look for new things to try. Um, also look for some different marketing avenues. Uh, try some different grazing practices. Maybe try uh, different uh, species. I guess my, in, in, a, in a nutshell, just try some new things. And usually the worst case scenario is, is, is it's a walk in most cases. Things like, you know what I mean? And, and you might've gave up a little bit of your time, but in my experience and a lot of the new things that we tried, but that's why we are where we're at. Why my dad did what he did. He, I, he's always been the, the neighborhood or the county black sheep, it seems like, of uh, being, and, and they'll even say that. All of our friends around the county will even say that. Well, old Chester, he's never afraid to try something new. And we've had a lot of failures because of it too. But like you said, they were—they're not—they don't really go down as failures, and they never really hurt it financially in the end. Um, sometimes it's weak, and they work. You know what I mean? So that's one thing I would—I would say definitely is to try something new, and get a, a good support system of people that are doing something new, and not afraid to share their ideas with you. That has also been very helpful. Is, you know. In business or in ranching, you know, and, and stuff, a lot of people have a tendency to play things really close to them. And if they've got something good figured out, they don't almost want to share. You know, a lot of, I can't say everybody, but there's a lot of, it seems to happen a lot in ranching. You know, all we want to go to town and talk about is the weather and what's going on and, you know, well, the small town talk. But when you can have a support system and some people that, hey, I, what do you think about this? I've got this idea. What do you think is the downside to this? And you've got some, a support system of some people that are, are doing some new and different things. That is very valuable because they're not afraid. Usually those people aren't afraid to tell you what's working, what hasn't worked on their place or, or the, what they did that didn't work. Yeah. Or what they did that didn't work or be supportive of somebody else trying something new too, that they haven't tried yet. You know what I mean? And, that, and we need that. Everybody needs that, I think. So that would be, that would be, and also one of my other famous quotes is from that Moneyball movie. Sometimes the first guy through the door, the most times the first guy through the door gets the bloodiest. You remember that quote? Are you familiar with the movie? No, I've, I've never actually seen that one, but something very similar comes to mind that uh, pioneers take all the arrows. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so, 
know that it depends on where you are in your situation that, you know, you might lose some friends, but you're going to gain a lot more, or you might, you might be the brunt of some gossip, but you're, you're in the end, it's been beneficial to us to be the brunt of gossip, I guess. <laughs> and it, it has changed. The wheels are turning in the regenerative. You know, I've been, we've been through all the buzz terms. There's, there was the, you know, sustainable grazing, mob grazing, you know, grass, organic grass fed, you know, you know, all of this stuff. And now we're kind of on this regenerative grazing. And I, and I'm not going to say I hated any of it before, but let's just call them what they are. And most of them are all buzz turns, but we've been, this wheel been turning for so long. I don't think we need to stop now. So. No, no. I, I think market adoption is, or, you know, it, Adoption of regenerative practices by producers is well past the 3% mark where it's got a foothold. It's got a foothold in the marketplace and it's not going anywhere. And it's only going to grow from here. Yeah. So I think we're in a great, I think we're in a great spot in agriculture and, you know, guys like your dad, my dad, you and me, we've had to take arrows and we've had to take barbs from established industry. And yeah, I think, you know, as time keeps moving forward, we're, we're, we're going to be proven the ones that are right. We're going to be proven the I ones so. that are going to be here for the long term. So, I think that's a great place to end. You got anything else? I think so too. No, I just thank you for having me. I hope, hope, uh, hope your listeners enjoy it. I sure enjoyed talking to you. I really enjoyed it too, Chess. And um, guys out there in podcast land, hope you enjoyed it. Have a great week. And don't forget, I was going to say this just a minute ago. Seven most dangerous words in agriculture. We have always done it this way. Yeah. All right, guys. Go have a great week. We'll see you.